As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 16, Clubbing in Paris. Now, before we dive into the various political clubs and societies of revolutionary France, as well as the new factional groupings which will dominate and then cripple the Assembly, there is a housekeeping matter that we need to attend to. The format of Grey History is changing for the next few episodes. So far, Grey History has been running on a very sequential basis. A happened, then B happened, then C happened, etc, etc. The nature of the revolution has allowed us to approach the story in this way. However, after the October days, we hit a sudden lull in big-ticket, show-stopping revolutionary events. From October 1789 to June 1791, we hit a period of about a year and a half when it may appear that there isn't much happening on centre stage. But in fact, a lot of things were happening behind the scenes. This period of time is kind of like the calm before the storm, and it's in this calm that the revolutionaries manage to create their own storm, because over this period of time, the assembly manages to make enemies out of just about everybody. There is going to be a whole range of policies and decrees which will help create a range of issues that start simmering away in the background until they finally pop. So... Instead of tackling this period of time sequentially, which would result in a dog's breakfast of a story, we're going to tackle it thematically. The rundown over the next five or so episodes looks something like this. In this episode, we'll tackle the factions dominating the National Assembly and the political clubs and societies which were becoming prominent throughout revolutionary France. We'll also be discussing the thorny issues surrounding legitimate expression and the debates around suffrage and martial law. Next episode, we'll run through the Assembly's rivals for power. A whole range of institutions will start to challenge the Assembly's authority, and the results of these challenges are pretty damn important. After that, we'll go through the spirit of democracy that was engulfing France in episode 18. We'll also discuss the brief period of time when everyone faked a smile, held hands, and pretended that they actually liked one another. No, that event is not called Christmas, but rather the Festival of the Federation. By episode 19, we'll get onto the very important topic of the Holy War, which the revolutionaries commence against the Catholic Church. Eventually, in this revolution, there will be reactionary priests leading armed peasant uprisings against revolutionary forces in a very bloody civil war. Episode 19, we'll be running through how that civil war actually came to be. Finally, in episode 20, we'll be discussing the evil dreaded, sinister counter-revolution, because the counter-revolution will actually start becoming a threat with teeth. This is of course helped by the fact that the revolutionaries were pissing so many people off, but hey, that's a minor detail. Throughout all of these episodes, we'll be introduced to new major characters and key reforms and decrees which will help set us up for the next big-ticket revolutionary event. An event which more or less involves the king saying, I quit. So, with that rough multi-episode agenda set, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 16, Clubbing in Paris. On the 6th of October, 1789, a procession of some 60,000 people accompanied the king to Paris. The market women proclaimed that they had brought back the baker, the baker's wife, and the baker's son. In reality, of course, they had brought back a prisoner. A prisoner who would henceforth scheme to escape his revolutionary chains, and a prisoner who would seek to turn back the clock on this wild revolutionary experiment. But the time to discuss the king's treason is not now. Instead, it's time to discuss the baker's assistants, the deputies of the National Assembly. 
Of course, where the king went, so too did the people's representatives. And so, the majority of the body departed Versailles for Paris in the days that followed the March of the Market Women. I do stress, however, the majority of the body. For some of the people's representatives, the violent intimidation of the Parisian masses during the October days was the last straw. These deputies no longer had the appetite to associate with a revolution which had so blatantly infringed on the rights of His Majesty the King, and which had so violently threatened both the royal family and the people's deputies themselves. Historian Peter Kruupkin writes, Fear of the people felt itself in the assembly, immediately after October the 5th. More than 200 deputies refused to go to Paris, and demanded passports for returning to their homes. They met with a refusal and were treated as traitors, but a certain number of them sent in their resignations all the same. They were not thinking of going so far. There was now a new series of emigrations, as there had been after July the 14th, but this time it was not the court which gave the signal, it was the assembly. One such deputy to depart was Meunier, the then president of the National Assembly. Resigning on the 8th of October, two days after the king's forced removal from Versailles, Meunier had had enough of the revolution. For Meunier, the revolution had gone too far, had become too violent, and was adopting too radical philosophies for the way the new order should be governed. He joined the new wave of emigration that historian Peter Kruupkin alluded to, moving to Switzerland after failing to raise any sort of significant resentment towards Paris in his home of the Dauphine. Meunier was not the only leading voice of the English bloc to depart, however. Others who had championed bicameralism and the absolute veto left as well, no longer willing to be vilified in the streets as enemies of the people or agents of the counter-revolution. This included Lalitando, another prominent member of the Monarchals, who eventually found his way to England, as well as Bergasse, a member of the Constitutional Committee. The departure of Meunier and his allies, however, is more than just another footnote of history where men who helped to unleash a revolution were unable to control what they started. The departure of Meunier helped to facilitate a realignment of political groupings within the Assembly as the body reconvened in Paris. Meunier had, after all, been such a dominant player up until now. He was a key figure in the Vassil Assembly, the regional estates general in the Dauphine that acted as a precursor to the estates general at a national level and made its summoning almost inevitable. He led the Dauphine delegates at the estates general, who, along with the Brenton Club, ensured the third's obstruction of verification and thus facilitated the unification of orders. It was Meunier who suggested the famous tennis court oath, where deputies swore to remain united until a constitution had been established, and it was Meunier who had led the English bloc during the divisive debates of the summer of 1789, championing both bicameralism and the absolute veto. So, it should be no surprise that Meunier's departure, along with the departure of other leading moderate conservatives, helped to facilitate a realignment of political groupings and factions within the assembly. As these vocal centre-right deputies departed the chamber, it provided an opportunity for a more unapologetically conservative right-wing bloc to rise to prominence within the Assembly. Meunier's departure was not the only event which helped to facilitate a realignment of the political affiliations within the Assembly as it reconvened in Paris. Another was, of course, what prompted Meunier and others to leave in the first place the growing violence of the Parisian mob, and the forced relocation of the royal family to the metropolis. With their leadership missing, many deputies who had associated with the English bloc shifted rightwards towards a newly emergent and empowered conservative group, a group headed by, amongst others, Jean Suffren Marie. Eventually, these conservatives would become known as the Blacks because of the number of priests sitting together on the right side of the president. But the same events that had pushed these centre-right deputies into the arms of the Conservatives also prompted many progressive, democratically-minded deputies to shift further from the centre too. Now in the safety of Paris, surrounded by the support of not only a vocal populace occupying the galleries, but also a vocal press flooding the streets with regular publications, deputies on the left felt emboldened to push for even further reforms and progressive policies. Thus, the move to Paris not only robbed the Assembly of an influential faction, Meunier's centre-right English bloc, but it also further polarised the deputies that remained. Reinforcing this polarisation, the new lodgings of the deputies further strengthened these divisions. 
Where at Versailles, deputies had predominantly lodged with individuals from their hometown or region, deputies now began to arrange their lodgings based on ideological inclinations. With the deputies factionalised both within the Assembly and outside of it, the divisions inside the National Assembly and its successors were on a one-way track to becoming more explicit and eventually irreversible. Now, explaining the political groupings of the National Assembly as it settles into Paris isn't exactly the easiest task in the world. One key difficulty in doing so arises from the fact that political parties, as you or I know them as, don't really exist yet. It's only now that the terms left and right are being developed. These terms come from the French Revolution, as progressive deputies gather on the left of the president and conservatives gather on the right. So, considering we're only inventing the terms left and right now, we're a long way off the institutionalised party structures and voting blocks that we see in today's democracies. Furthermore, the very definitions of left and right are moving pretty quickly. If you think about it, what it means to be of the left and of the right is relatively static between, say, 2018 and 2019. But in 1788, one year before the events we've been discussing, the terms left and right didn't exist. And if they had, they would have meant very different things a year later in 1789. Back in 1788, surely right would have meant supporting an unaltered Estates General, while left would have meant being in favour of an Estates General voting by head and with the thirds representation doubled. Fast forward to October 1789, and there isn't even an Estates General to have a debate over. Things were moving fast. On top of this fluid situation, it's pretty painstaking to get every little club and society right as they pop up, merge, split up or disintegrate. The result is that it's pretty damn difficult to illustrate the political situation within the Assembly in a nice little pie chart showing how powerful each faction was at any given moment. In simple terms, the Chamber can be broken down into four loose ideological groupings. And I stress, loose. The right, the centre, the left, and the far left. Now, for those of you who've picked up that that's an odd-looking political horseshoe, I did indeed leave out both the remnants of Meunier's centre-right as well as the far-right. The far-right we'll touch on in a future episode, but unlike the far-left, these individuals were essentially unwilling to play ball in the new order and were busy off with the Comte d'Artois travelling around the courts of Europe seeking men and money for an invasion to rectify this revolutionary mess. The members of the far-right, or the ultra-royalists as I'll call them, had no appetite to participate in a national assembly they viewed to be treasonous and illegal. The centre-right was a different kettle of fish. Deputies of this inclination did exist in the assembly, but some had departed the assembly or shifted rightward after the October days. As historian Christopher Hibbert remarks, those monarchians which remained in the assembly failed to exert much influence after October 1789. Furthermore, the divisive first debates of the assembly, particularly in regards to the Catholic Church, pushed what remained of this bloc firmly to the right, that is to say, into the arms of the conservative faction known as the Blacks. Thinking of the Assembly in terms of these ideological inclinations, right, centre, left and far left, is not exactly the easiest, however. Fortunately, many deputies associated with political clubs and societies which often reflected their ideological inclinations. In saying this, some deputies would be members of no clubs or societies, others multiple, and despite the temptation to think of these political clubs and societies as political parties, they're far too fluid to be thought of as such. Members of these clubs were far from consistent, unified voting blocs. As the Assembly first settled into Paris, two sizable voting factions were present in the Assembly. The first faction was the Conservatives, made up of the deputies of the right and most of the remnants of the centre-right. Abbé Marie is perhaps their most well-recognised and capable orator, consistently described by historians as being one of the few speakers who could match, if not best, Mirabeau in the art of speechcraft. Others, such as Malou and Stanislas, also championed the Conservative cause too. In short, the Conservatives of the Assembly believed that the body should exist, but believed that the Assembly should be subordinate to the King. On issues such as declaring war or selecting ministers, the Conservatives believed that these powers should be held not by the legislature, but by the monarch. This is where the Conservatives differed from the Centre, who often believed that the Assembly should be on roughly equal footing with the King, and where the Conservatives differed from the ultra-royalist far-right, who didn't believe the Assembly should exist at all. 
Outside of the assembly, these conservative deputies were often members of a club named the Club Monarchique, or the Monarchist Club. The club vigorously supported the French monarchy, the French aristocracy, and the Catholic Church. Sponsoring right-wing newspapers, by late 1790, the club regularly attacked the Republican tendencies of both the radical press and some members of the National Assembly. The club also propagated the damage progressive policies were causing the economy, and handed out bread to the poor in an effort to boost public support for its conservative agenda. These actions were of course viewed with suspicion amongst centre and left-wing deputies, who weren't sure where conservatism ended and where counter-revolutionary ultra-royalism began. The problem for these conservative deputies and members of the club monarchy was that while they supported constitutional monarchy, many monarchists inside and outside of France supported absolute monarchy. Unable to completely detach themselves from the ultra-royalists who lurked in the shadows, these right-wing deputies were always viewed with suspicion by both progressive deputies as well as the left-leaning press. Many other deputies, however, became members of another prominent political club named the Society of the Friends of the Constitution. The club would eventually become known as the Jacobin Club, due to its meeting hall being in an old Jacobin monastery. The Jacobin Club originated from the Brenton Club, which had operated in Versailles and which had been instrumental in bringing about the unification of orders and the abolition of privileges. Initially, the Jacobins' objectives were threefold. Firstly, to discuss in advance matters that would be debated in the Assembly. Secondly, to work on drafting and cementing the Constitution. And thirdly, to foster and liaise with similar Jacobin clubs throughout the country. Unlike the Conservative deputies, which deliberately maintained more secretive and exclusive clubs, the Jacobins made it a mission to be relatively open and create a network of like-minded organisations throughout France. By August 1790, there was 152 clubs in France. A year later, there were over 400 affiliated clubs by autumn 1791. Originally, many centre, left and far-left deputies gathered under the banner of the Jacobins. Membership included those on the left, such as the triumvirate Adrien Duport, Antoine Barnev, and Alexandre de Lamath, as well as progressive churchman Abbé Gregoire and an increasingly notable populist deputy named Maximilien Robespierre. Centrists included the Comte de Mirabeau and Abbé Sierz, and even some members of the far left joined as well, generally either authoritarian populists or, as in the case of Jérôme Pétion, Republicans in the closet. With so many left-wing deputies joining the club, the Jacobin Club did start to become an unofficial voice of the left of the Assembly. The problem, however, was that such a broad church of ideological inclinations was bound to split up. The ideological church of the Jacobins was simply too big and too broad considering the turbulent times France faced and the foreign concept of political parties and the lack of accompanying party discipline. As the Assembly started to tackle thorny issues such as martial law, voting rights and the bankruptcy, the broad church of the Jacobins would start to splinter. As a quick aside on the difficulties surrounding party discipline, the National Assembly had slightly less than 1,200 members. At the time, the House of Representatives in the United States had 106, a difference of 10 times. Although much larger, the House of Commons in the United Kingdom had just over 550 members still less than half of the membership of the National Assembly. So you can imagine just how big the Assembly was, and just how ungovernable it must have been, considering the lack of party discipline and indeed well-established parliamentary procedure. Now, before we go discussing the thorny issues which would help to splinter the broad church of the Jacobins, let us first finish discussing the four loose ideological groupings within the National Assembly. To recap, the Conservatives believed that the King should sit above the Assembly. The Assembly could exist, but their pro-monarch, pro-church, pro-aristocracy agenda resulted in the Conservatives pursuing a constitutional monarchy that emphasised the monarchy. The centrists, however, did not share that same emphasis. Separating themselves from the Conservatives, for many centrists, the Assembly and the King should sit on roughly equal footing. How to establish this balance was often bitterly debated, but the principle of empowering both the legislature and the executive that is to say, empowering both the Assembly and the King, was held firmly by many deputies of the Centre. This constitutional equality is what separated the Centre from the left and the far left. Those on the left side of the chamber felt that the Assembly should be the predominant power in the new revolutionary order. 
Practically, this meant not just opposing the king's absolute veto, but advocating for things like the assembly possessing the power to make war or controlling the royal ministry. More importantly, however, the deputies on the left through to the far left increasingly embraced a more democratic ideology, far more democratic than what the centrists were willing to sign up for. Those on the left often favoured an expanded electorate with minimal eligibility requirements and were perhaps even more sympathetic to forms of direct democracy. The left was dominated by democratically-minded liberal monarchists, and the far left, although small, consisted of authoritarian populists and closet republicans. Thus, the assembly was comprised of individuals which possessed a huge spectrum of views. Republicans on the far left, devout royalists on the far right, democratically-minded liberal monarchists and sceptical centrists sprinkled throughout the middle. With such a wide assortment of ideologies, the assembly was set for some pretty divisive debates. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Having settled into Paris, the deputies had multiple pressing issues to attend to, the bankruptcy being only one of them. Another equally important problem facing the deputies, in fact, debatably more important if you consider the constitution to be permanent and the bankruptcy to be an event, was the matter around who should and should not have the right to vote. It's this debate, the debate around the distinctions between active and passive citizens, that will cement a split within the Jacobin Club and will foster the creation of a third centrist voting faction within the Assembly, a faction that would gather around its own club, named the Society of 1789. But before we go down that rabbit hole, there is a smaller debate that touches on the same key issue, the issue of what did and did not count as legitimate expression. The issue of what ways the French could legally express their opinions and grievances. This smaller debate around legitimate expression is the debate on martial law. Not a debate on its introduction, but a debate on legislation which would allow its declaration in the future. Now, if you think about it, a debate around martial law at this point of time kind of makes sense. After all, imagine if you had been a deputy on the 5th and 6th of October. Minding your own business as a deputy of the nation, the assembly, the nation's chamber, the whole of the people's representatives, was invaded by a threatening mob of uncivilised pleb-like women. In soaking wet rags, courtesy of the rain, these market women, fishwives, prostitutes, fruit sellers, all proceeded to do much more than just interrupt deliberations and heckle unpopular deputies. With their pikes, with their clubs, with their swords and with their pistols, they threatened detested deputies with their lives and humiliated these hated representatives in the process. Furthermore, this same mob had almost killed the Queen. They had invaded the palace, beheaded the guards, shouted for all to hear that they intended to mutilate the Austrian whore should she be unlucky enough to be captured. It was this invasion which had prompted 200 deputies to ask for passports, and for people like Meunier, the then President of the Assembly, to resign. 
it should not be surprising then that some deputies would push for legislation which would enable martial law to be proclaimed when needed. Many deputies were all too aware that a day's march no longer separated them from this rabble, this violent rabble which was now just right outside. If, however, the events of October the 5th and 6th were not enough to get a deputy to vote in favour of the legislation, the people of Paris provided another reason to do so just a couple of days after the assemblies arrived in Paris. An unlucky baker named Francois was decapitated by the mob on the 21st of October, fueled partially by notions of conspiracy thanks to pamphleteers like our favourite radical mischief-maker Jean-Paul Marat. This decapitation led the Paris Commune to request that the Assembly make a law against riots in order to contain the mob in the future. The Assembly obliged and passed legislation on that very day. In the future, all gatherings would be deemed to be illegal once a red flag was displayed by the Hotel de Ville and by soldiers acting on its orders. Once that red flag was up for all to see, all force necessary could be used to quell a riot and all leaders of the insurrection could be sentenced to death. The National Assembly had decided that the same violent crowds that had secured its existence in July were now too violent. Adopting the attitudes of the Crown, these crowds could now be legally suppressed with force in the name of the national interest. Taking a step back from this law, which would be deployed in the future and have devastating consequences for some key actors in this revolution, <coughs> Lafayette, <coughs> it is clear that the Assembly was trying to grapple with one key issue. What were the legitimate forms of expression of the people's will? Where exactly did the boundaries lie which surrounded individual liberty? If one had a grievance, how else besides the ballot box could one voice that grievance? These are all issues that democracies struggle to deal with today, and these issues would haunt the Assembly and the Revolution for years to come. As if to reinforce the lack of concrete political parties in the Assembly, it is noteworthy to take stock of which voices actually rallied against this law. Left-leaning Barnev, member of the Triumvirate and a key author of the Rules of the Jacobins Club, was relatively silent. François Bouzeau and Jérôme Pitten, both individuals of the far left, essentially closet Republicans at this point, stayed out of the debate as well. It was actually one prominent centrist, as well as one rapidly rising left-wing populist named Maximilien Robespierre, who championed the cause of the common people against this legislation, ultimately failing to convince their colleagues of the unjust nature of martial law. The centrist, who once proclaimed to be the dog who would bite despotism to death, was Mirabeau. For the people's champion, the idea of answering cries for bread with force was shameful and unthinkable. We ask for a martial law and for a court. These two things are necessary, but are they the first determinations to be set? I know nothing more frightening than the motions caused by scarcity. Everything is silence. Everything has to be silenced. Everything must succumb to a hungry people. What use would martial law be if the people assemble and exclaim, there is no bread at the bakery? What monster would answer this with gunshots? The people's hero, Mirabeau, certainly was. At least, for now. Eventually, he himself would be considered a monster in the eyes of the mob, and it wouldn't require any gunshots for this transformation to occur. Nevertheless, This defence against martial law does help to illustrate the difficulty the National Assembly was beginning to have regarding the qualification of legitimate expression. It's this difficulty which would help to plunge the Assembly into a far more divisive debate. A debate that ensures the creation of a third centrist faction within the Assembly and in many ways dooms the Constitution into being untenable. As seen with his position on martial law, Mirabeau illustrated the difficulty of thinking of the Assembly as being broken into unified political blocs. Mirabeau had rejected the right suggestion of bicameralism, then supported the right suggestion of an absolute veto, and finally swung back to a position on martial law that was so far left that even some leaders of the Jacobins, such as Barnev, were unwilling to passionately pursue it. This 
pendulum-like behaviour on key policies certainly wasn't replicated by every deputy, but it does serve to demonstrate how pigeonholing everyone into political buckets can be simple yet ultimately misleading in a world where political parties in the modern sense don't even exist. On the matter of pendulum-like behaviour, however, there is one deputy who perhaps rivals Mirabeau's ability to swing from the left to the right on key issues and their considerable swing is in regards to this broader theme of legitimate expression and participation in France's new society. So, which deputy am I talking about? I'm talking about Abbé Sies. So far, you could be forgiven for thinking that Abbé Sies was some die-hard lefty, who would no doubt be joining Barnev and others in leading the Jacobins and the left-leaning bloc of the Assembly. Indeed, So far in this story, he has behaved like a Republican in all but name. He had, after all, written the most famous pamphlet of the revolution to date, What is the Third Estate? Proclaiming the Third Estate to be everything. Sears was instrumental in pushing the Third Estate to commence its unilateral verification of deputies back in the Estates General. It was his idea for the Third to just start verifying all deputies without the other orders present. Thus, he was instrumental in the creation of the National Assembly. Sies had drafted his own proposals for the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and more importantly, had led the movement against Minier and his proposal of bicameralism and the absolute veto. Sies, unlike Barnev, even rejected the notion of a suspensive veto, believing that neither His Majesty nor a second legislative chamber should have the ability to restrain the people's will. But having championed the people's will so fiercely, Having defended it from a Senate and from the King, Sies would now seek to define just who were the people whose wills should actually be adhered to. It's on this issue of defining legitimate expression that this passionate champion on the left reveals himself to be far more of a centrist than he first appears. Proposing a distinction between active and passive citizens Abbé Sies outraged the left by suggesting only a fraction of France's population should actually have the right to vote. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it was not the exclusion of women which outraged the left. After all, it would be New Zealand, more than 100 years later, to be the first self-governing colony to allow women to vote in 1893. No, what outraged the left was the exclusion of large portions of the male population from having the right to vote. According to Sies, only Frenchmen who were over the age of 25 and paid direct tax of three days' worth of wages a year should be able to vote, provided that they had been living in their constituency for at least a year and were not a servant, bankrupt or insolvent. These citizens, of which there were perhaps as many as 4.3 million in the country, would be considered active citizens. Everyone else in the nation of some 26 million people Men who failed to meet the criteria, along with women and slaves, would have no right to vote at all. They would be considered passive citizens. That wasn't the end of it, however, as Sies was sceptical of direct democracy. Active citizens would vote for electors, who would then go on to vote for deputies. It was a two-tiered electoral system, further decoupling the notion of the people's will from direct democracy. Electors had to pay 10 days' worth of taxes per year which meant that only around 50,000 people in the entire nation could vote for national representatives. For Sies and the centrists who backed him, as well as the conservatives, the merits of such a system were clear. The people had proved during the October days that they could be wild and unpredictable. Democracy, in the modern sense of the word, was feared. The rule of the mob, of the common people, was in the eyes of many deputies ill-advised. By limiting franchise to those who paid three days' worth of labour in tax, the Assembly hoped it was limiting franchise to those who had proved themselves to be productive citizens. Citizens who would be capable of making informed decisions at the ballot box in the best interests of the nation. Soon to rally behind a new political club named the Society of 1789, it's here that the distinction between the centrists of the Assembly and those deputies of the left can be seen most clearly. Many leading Jacobins, whether they be closet Republicans like Jerome Piton, populists like Maximilien Robespierre, or liberal monarchists like Duport, saw the principal threat to the revolution resting with counter-revolutionary conspiracy. 
To them, empowering the people was a way to safeguard the revolution from the sinister plots that were lurking in the shadows. For the centrists, who would come to lead the society of 1789, people like Mirabeau, Sieyès, Lafayette and Talleyrand, it was chaos, anarchy, bankruptcy and disorder which were the real threats to the revolution, not counter-revolutionary conspiracy. In order to safeguard the revolution from these threats, the centre sided with Abbe Marie's conservative bloc in attempting to minimise chaos by minimising the electorate itself. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Unsurprisingly, this proposal was nothing more than a mutilation of the people's genuine will in the eyes of some left-leaning deputies. The fact that the vast majority of the people would be sidelined from the political process was outrageous and disgraceful. The Assembly fiercely debated the merits of classifying citizens into active and passive categories on the 22nd of October, and some on the left lined up to vehemently denounce the idea. Abbé Grégoire, one of the initial priests to defect from the First Estate during the Estates General, denounced the scheme as an avenue for creating an aristocracy of the rich. Believing the rights of the poor were being forgotten, the progressive churchmen argued that to be a voter, it was enough to be a good citizen to have a healthy judgment and a French heart. Adrien Duport, leader of the radical faction of the Paris Parlement during the Brienne ministry, member of the Jacobin Club, and one of the leaders of the Triumvirate, made it clear that he felt the idea was flawed in multiple ways. He felt that the distinctions violated the Declaration of the Rights of Man. He questioned the merits of basing eligibility on taxation, which may not exist in the future and warned that future assemblies could easily change the economic requirements. In that, he did have a point. Article 6 of the Declaration of the Rights of Man did proclaim the law to be the expression of the general will, and all citizens had the right to contribute to its formation, personally or through their representatives. If they weren't personally voting for the legislation, and they weren't personally voting for the representatives making that legislation, were not their rights being violated by Siez's proposal. Siez would counter that there was a difference between passive rights held by everybody and active rights held only by some, but many on the left disagreed vehemently with such distinctions. Other deputies attacked the proposal with practicalities rather than theories. Almost as if they had a crystal ball, one deputy remarked how could the assembly reasonably expect the poor to submit themselves to laws that they hadn't created? A good question, considering the law was no longer created by a divinely appointed king, but rather derived, magically, through some foreign concept known as natural rights. Rights which were apparently safeguarding the poor's equality and liberty, but somehow also justifying why they didn't get a vote. That good question was insufficiently answered. Outside of the assembly, journalists like Camille Demelard, who played a key role in the days of the Bastille by rallying the people with an inspiring speech in the Palais Royal, pointed out that it was mainly passive citizens who had actively stormed the fortress prison which dominated the Parisian skyline. Demelard, along with the majority of the revolutionary press, argued forcefully for the rejection of such distinctions. The new laws not only excluded some of the conquerors of the Bastille, but they would even forbid men from voting who had been allowed to vote during the elections for the Estates General. One voice that rose in opposition was the same voice which, along with Mirabeau, had been one of the few to fight against the introduction on the decree of martial law. The voice of Maximilien Robespierre. 
a lawyer who became a deputy for Arras, the 31-year-old was increasingly becoming prominent within the Jacobin Club and the populist-leaning circles of Paris. Short for the times at 5 foot 3 inches, or 160 centimetres, Robespierre was pale, wore glasses, and lacked both the physical presence and the commanding voice that we associate with many other leading revolutionaries, such as Danton and Mirabeau. Despite this lacklustre appearance, however, Robespierre was increasingly idolised and praised by the popular press, particularly by Marat. Although a monarchist long after many in the left turned openly Republican, Robespierre believed passionately in the ideology taught by the philosophe Rousseau. From this, Robespierre coveted the virtuous nature of the people's will, and believed in the necessity of subordinating the king to a popularly elected legislator. Holding nothing back, Robespierre condemned the proposed distinctions between active and passive citizens. All citizens, whoever they are, have right to aspire to all the degrees of representation. Nothing is more in accordance with your Declaration of Rights, in front of which any privilege, any distinction, any exemption has to disappear. The Constitution establishes that the sovereignty lies in the people, in all the individuals of the people. Every individual is thus entitled to contribute to the law by which he is obliged, and to the administration of the public, which he is. Otherwise, it is not true that all the people are equal in rights, that every man is public-spirited. If the one who pays only an equivalent taxation of a working day has less rights than the one who pays the value of three working days, the one who pays ten days has more rights than the one the taxation of which amounts only to the value of three. From then, on the one that has a hundred thousand livres of pension has a hundred times as much rights as the one who has only one thousand livres of income. It results from all your decrees that every citizen has the right to contribute to the law, and thus to be an elector or eligible without the distinction of fortune. A passionate speech by Robespierre but one which failed to sway the assembly. In the end, the distinctions between active and passive citizens would indeed be legislated. Going forward, all Frenchmen would be entitled to a series of universal basic rights, but some would get more rights than others. The division of the populace into active and passive citizens would cement division within the assembly itself. This controversial law helped to splinter the broad church of the Jacobins and create a new centrist faction within the assembly, a faction which dominated the political club known as the Society of 1789. Furthermore, the law would empower a new populist club on the fringes of the far left of politics, a club that would become a nightmare for both the assembly and the Paris Commune. But you'll have to wait to meet that famous club until next episode. And before we dive into the Society of 1789, helping us to complete our map of France's new prominent political clubs, it's worth taking note of an alternative historical view on this controversial legislation. Most historians point out that this law disenfranchised not only large portions of the population, but the same portions of the population that had been politically active. As Demolard proclaimed in his publications, the Bastille was actively taken by passive citizens. In a sense, the assembly was trying to put the genie back in the bottle, a feat that was going to be nearly impossible. One historian, however, doesn't shed a tear for the social constituencies that are generally considered to have been ostracised by this law. Historian Hippolyte Taine laments instead for another social constituency, which he feels to have been the one that was truly wronged. The class of active citizens, indeed, comprises about all the men who labour with their hands or with their heads. The law exempts only domestics devoted to personal service, or common labourers who, possessing no property or income, earn less than 21 sous a day. Every journeyman miller, the smallest farmer, every village proprietor of a cottage or of a vegetable garden, any ordinary workman, votes at the primary meetings and may become a municipal officer. 
Again, if he pays 10 francs a year direct tax, if he is a farmer or a yeoman on any property which brings him in 400 francs, if his rent is 150 francs, he may become an elected elector or an administrator of the district or department. According to this standard, the eligible are innumerable. In due, in 1790, they form two-thirds of the active citizens. Thus, the way to office is open to all, or almost all, and the law has taken no precaution whatever to reserve or provide places for the elite who could best fill them. On the contrary, the nobles, the ecclesiastical dignitaries, the members of the parlements, the grand functionaries of the ancient regime, the upper class of the bourgeoisie, almost all the rich who possess leisure, are practically excluded from the elections by violence and from the various offices by public opinion. They soon retire into private life and through discouragement or disgust, through monarchical or religious scruples, abandon entirely a public career. Paine sheds tears not for the passive citizens of France who had been disenfranchised, but instead the capable elites who through violence and intimidation were ostracised from revolutionary politics. While I view these claims as exaggerated, one cannot dispute the fact that Meunier and other leading members of the English bloc did indeed retire into private life once their religious or monarchist ideas conflicted with the popular will of the masses and resulted in their violent intimidation. Taine is not alone in his observations, however. Historian Donald Sutherland supports Taine's claims that a significant number of Frenchmen would indeed have been included in the electorate. Sutherland points out that if the estimate of 4.3 million active citizens was true, this would have resulted in an electorate of about two-thirds of the adult male population. Furthermore, it would have resulted in proportional terms in a bigger electorate than that which existed at the time in England and in many states of America. Sutherland summarises the exclusion of passive citizens as follows. In the country as a whole, perhaps 60-70% to 70% of the adult males who met the age and residency qualifications were active citizens. The system was much more inclusive than the rhetoric at the time alleged. Whether the system was truly much more inclusive than the rhetoric at the time alleged depends a lot on the figures one is using to make one's analysis. The claims of Taine and Sutherland that a great many citizens still could participate in French democracy are refuted by others. Historian John Boscher claims that only 80,000 men qualified in Paris, out of a population of some 650,000 people. Historian Simon Sharma also refutes the notion that the law was anything but restrictive. These limits disenfranchised large sections of the population. All rural day labourers and hired hands, domestic servants, many journeymen artisans, all social constituencies which had been crucially engaged in the revolutionary agitations of 1788-89 and who had come to expect great things from their political deliverance. From what I can tell, the division between active and passive citizens was very real and very influential. If it wasn't, it's unlikely that the Jacobins and other left-leaning clubs would spend so much time over the next few years ceaselessly campaigning for the distinction's removal. The debate of active and passive citizens helped to entrench the differences between the centrist, more moderate faction of the Jacobins and the left and far-left wings of the club. Seeking an opportunity to lead the revolution by bridging differences within the assembly and seeking to moderate progressive aims while crystallising the revolution's victories, some centrist deputies officially formed the Society of 1789 in May 1790. Centrists such as Mirabeau, Sies, Talleyrand and Bailly were all early members. Interestingly, many of these deputies were original members of the Society of 30 and the Brenton Club. Importantly, this meant that the Brenton Club, principally responsible for the obstruction of verification during the Estates General, as well as the success of the abolition of privileges in August, was now splitting up. The former radicals were dividing themselves between the centrists in the Society of 1789, who wanted to consolidate the revolution, and more progressive deputies in the Jacobins Club, who wanted to progress it. 
While more exclusive than the Jacobins, which led to criticisms of elitism, the Society of 1789 was also a broad church of opinions. Left-leaning public figures such as the Comte de Volnay and the Marquis de Condesseur were also members in addition to many of the Assembly's leading centrists. According to historian Jonathan Israel, the explicit goal of the club was to try to reconcile the liberal monarchists with the democratic republicans to create a large and stable bloc capable of leading and dominating the assembly. That goal, however, was never achieved, but the club contained many individuals who rose to prominence during the initial years of the revolution. Provided this centrist bloc didn't split in two, it could hypothetically play kingmaker on a range of key issues by siding with either the left or the right. Hypothetically, that is. Things wouldn't be so easy for the Society of 1789 and its members. As the revolution progressed throughout 1790, the centrists had difficulty building a solid alliance with the deputies on the left. The left rejected the centre's restriction on suffrage. The division between active and passive citizens was abhorrent, as well as attempts by the centre to limit press freedoms. In failing to build a solemn alliance with the left, the club would start to disintegrate, and as the revolution polarised its participants with divisive debates over the aristocracy, the king, and particularly the Catholic Church, some members of the Society of 1789 drifted rightwards towards the Conservatives and the Monarchist Club, again seeking to create a solid voting majority in the Assembly which could lead and dominate the revolution. However, here too, a grand coalition failed. Marie and other leading conservatives emphasised the monarchy part of constitutional monarchy. Believing the monarchy should sit above the elected legislator, not alongside it, the conservatives propagated a position which was far more pro-monarch and pro-church than leading centrists such as Mirabeau, Sierz and Barnev could ever tolerate. As it turned out, standing in the centre of the road merely meant that you got run over twice. The result of all of this was that none of the three main groups within the Assembly controlled the chamber by the end of 1790. The pro-church, pro-monarchy, pro-aristocracy conservatives on the right, the blacks, many of whom associated with the monarchist club, they did not control the Assembly. The liberal monarchists, who occupied the centre and centre-left, associated with the Society of 1789 and the centrist tendencies of the Jacobins Club, they too did not control the body. And the progressive and radical Democrats, who occupied the left and the far left, aligned primarily with the Jacobins Club, they too, like the Conservatives and the Centrists, did not control the Assembly. This meant that the outcome of key debates was always far from certain, and the situation within the Assembly was extremely fluid. This fluidity was compounded by a mixture of juvenile parliamentary rules, poor party discipline when existent at all, personal feuds between deputies, and numerous ideological divisions along any number of fault lines. By the end of 1790, there were no shortages of clubs and factions within Paris and the nation as a whole. The revolution's division was well and truly underway. Thank you for listening to episode 16, Clubbing in Paris. Now, before you go, if you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History and you'd like to have some more Grey History, well, then there is something you can do to help that dream come true. If you know someone that likes it when the ambiguities of history are explored, that enjoys their history in a colour that is not black or white, please tell them about Grey History. The success of Grey History is dependent on people like you who enjoy the show. And so if you know someone who you think would like to dabble in the Grey, please tell them about the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.